Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name, my name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Professor William Doyle. Professor Doyle is Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Bristol. He is without a doubt one of the leading historians dealing with the subject of the French Revolution. And today we're discussing his newest book, Napoleon at Peace, How to End a Revolution, published by Reaction Books. Welcome, Professor Doyle. Glad to be with you. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? It's, well, the subtitle gives you the idea, How to End a Revolution. It, 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 it depends upon a definition of the revolution, which is a period of uh, uncertainty, a period of upheaval, uh, a period of instability. Um, and that uh, instability is caused by three great problems. Um, the problem of uh, uh, monarchy, the problem of religion, um, and the problem of war. Um, and uh, Napoleon's great achievement is actually to confront and solve those problems and thereby bring the revolution to an end. Why did Admiral Sir Sidney Smith allow or, and or assist Bonaparte to escape Egypt? And why did Bonaparte wish to escape Egypt in the first place? Well, um, uh, the, the book starts with a chapter on the escape from Egypt because that's, that's what gets Napoleon to France to actually take power. The interesting thing about Smith is it's always said that Smith wanted to uh, simply crow to Napoleon uh, about the losses that France had had uh, while he was away in Egypt. But there is some thought that Sidney Smith quite encouraged Napoleon to leave because uh, he thought that would uh, make things difficult for France generally. I mean, we can never quite know, but Sidney Smith was uh, uh, a speaker of French of native standard. He, he loved France. Uh, he uh, retired to France after the wars were over and is buried in Paris, in fact. So uh, there's an ambiguity about Sidney Smith, I think. But, but what we do know is that Sidney Smith's absence from the mouth of the Nile um, in the summer of 1799 enabled Napoleon to uh, make that dash back to France and uh, and take power. Um, I think, as, as regards Napoleon's motivation in doing that, um, it, it's simply that he could see uh, that uh, uh, all the gains that he'd, he'd largely he had made uh, in in the years before going to Egypt uh, had been lost and uh, he felt uh, this had got to be recovered and the only way to recover it was for him to go back. I mean, he never intended to stay in Egypt permanently anyway. Why did the Directory allow Bonaparte to become an autonomous actor in Italy in 1796-1797? Well, he was a winner. Um, and uh, <clears throat> that was the most important thing. I mean, uh, uh, he, he turned what the, they had envisaged as a subsidiary front to the uh, campaign that was mainly being waged in Germany. He had turned that whole thing round and, and made Italy the, the main uh, uh, theater of the war. Um, and he's a winning general. Um, and at one point, they did actually try to to, uh, to split the uh, command in Italy. And he said, no, you're, if, if you can't want to do this, I'm not doing it. And uh, they realized that, uh, that they were in the hands of this winner. 
um, and uh, uh, the result of that was that he ended up calling the shots completely, uh, um, more or less independently, making peace with the Austrians and dictating terms there, terms which the directory had not really liked. But uh, they didn't really have much point, uh, much uh, power to stop him by that time. Uh, when did Bonaparte be, uh, see himself as a sort of uh, Hegelian world historical figure? Uh, it's during the Italian campaign, uh, according to his uh, reminiscences and so on, uh, uh, when he began to uh, to win battles and win, win them apparently quite easily, um, uh, he said, I began to think of myself as, as something special, as someone, as a, as a person who could uh, really take power. But I, I don't think he, he thought of it much before he began to win battles in, in northern Italy. When did it? When did Abi Sayez, forgive my pronunciation, uh, decide to promote and use Bonaparte to overthrow the Directory? Well, Sayez thought the Directory did need to be reformed. It did need to have a, a constitution which uh, increased central power, which increased the power of the executive and so on. And he realized by that time that uh, he couldn't do anything without military support. Um, and he was looking around over the summer of 1799 for a general. Uh, he'd settled initially on General Joubert, but Joubert was actually killed in battle in uh, in, in northern Italy. Um, and Sies uh, <coughs> began to look around for other people. Uh, he uh, turned his attention to Moreau, uh, who was also a successful general. Um, and, and But Moreau, he's talking to Moreau at the very moment the news arrives that Napoleon has landed in the south of France. And Moreau said, that it, it, this isn't my job, there is your man. Um, and uh, uh, that's how CS uh, got Napoleon. I mean, um, the two of them didn't really get on terribly well, uh, but they knew they needed each other to do what they wanted to do. When, after the coup d'etat, did Bonaparte see that France needed peace? Oh, I think he saw it straight away, uh, you know, but, but the point about peace is it has got to be, as far as he's concerned, peace with victory. Um, it's no use making some sort of uh, compromise piece of any sort because uh, he didn't think that was really going to last and it wasn't going to uh, redound to the um, glory of his government. It's, it's got to be peace with victory and he's aiming at that right away from, from, from the moment he's, uh, he's in power. Why did the British and the French agree to the Treaty of 1802 establishing peace between them, themselves? Well, the French are in a very strong position by by the by uh, <clears throat> by the beginning of 1802 because they've defeated all their enemies on the continent, and then the British have got to look at that one and say, look, here we are, we're isolated, we're uh, we're um, <clears throat> fighting on alone because so we have no friends, no allies on the continent. They've all been defeated by the French, and we're also in trouble at home. There's war weariness and so on, but above all, there is. A, a striking coincidence which has nothing to do with Napoleon or anything else like that and that's the fall of Pitt and Pitt falls because uh, he feels he's honor bound to uh, uh, a commitment he made to favor the Irish uh, Catholics and give them political power 
uh, of, of access to political power, um, and the king vetoes it. And, and uh, uh, Pitt feels, well, in that case, I, I, I have no alternative but to resign. And once Pitt has gone, the man who had run the war right from the beginning, from the British point of view, uh, the way is open for someone else to actually do a deal with the French. But when you look at the Peace of Amiens, uh, it's pretty well a British surrender. Did Bonaparte view the Peace of 1802 in, as a short-term expedient or something much more long-term? Uh, it, it's, it's hard to tell. I think uh, he does say at, at one point uh, that uh, he doesn't expect it to last forever. Um, but uh, he, what he, he knows that sooner or later his uh, various uh, <coughs> enemies and opponents uh, will give him a pretext, will give him an excuse to, uh, uh, to fight again because, you know, he just loves fighting. Uh, why did Bonaparte agree to the Concordat with the Vatican? Now, that, I think, is the, uh, uh, apart from winning the war, is quite the most important thing he actually did because he saw very clearly that so long as the uh, French state was, uh, um, uh, I would say, at war with the Catholic Church, which they, they were, uh, then there was going to be no possibility of peace because the Catholic Church supported the, uh, the Bourbon royalist cause um, and also uh, was fermenting all the time unrest among a population which, uh, by and large, regretted the uh, <coughs> marginalization of the, of the uh, Catholic Church that the, the successive revolutionary regimes had, had, had tried to bring about. Uh, so he's, it, it's his incredible realism. He said, look, this is the problem, the most important problem we've got to solve, because if we don't solve this, there will be endless uh, unrest and uncertainty and, and, uh, and, and hostility to the regime. Do we know exactly when Bonaparte first contemplated becoming emperor? Uh, that's that's extremely difficult, I think. Um, uh, he, he, he clearly aims at you know absolute power for himself. I mean, and, and uh, that is is pretty clear right from the start. Um, and he gradually begins to realize that uh, the only way to perpetuate the sort of regime he wants to set up would be some sort of hereditary authority. Um, and uh, uh, <coughs> they realize also, you know, he's also subject to threats of assassination, assassination plots, and so on. And, and when war resumes with the British in 1803, the British actively support uh, 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 insurgents uh, and subversives who would like to assassinate Napoleon. Um, and he feels the only way to, to uh, perpetuate the sort of regime he's setting up is for it to be uh, a hereditary regime. So the, the, real, the, the real point comes, I think, once war resumes in, in, in 1803. Aside from the Concordat, how and why was Bonaparte so successful in stabilizing France domestically? Well... Uh, the Concordat is, is, is fundamental in all sorts of ways because it, it, it undercuts uh, uh, resistance uh, to 
the authority of the state and so on. But also he realizes that uh, he, he has got to reinforce the policing power uh, that the state has. And, and when he looks back um, uh, at, at the end of his period of power and so on, he said the real key to this is setting up the gendarmerie, is setting up this paramilitary police, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, uniformly organized throughout the country uh, to crack down on lawlessness and, and brigandage and so on. Um, a, a, a ruthless regime of, uh, of policing really is, is what he is uh, setting up. Uh, it, it's not fully established by the time he becomes emperor, but it's, it's in the course of establishing itself and already uh, the uh, unrest and uncertainty and brigandage and lawlessness that have characterized the, uh, the, uh, the revolutionary years are diminishing quite fast. What were the impressions, favorable or unfavorable, of British visitors to France in 1802-1803? <laughs> well, they're, they're fascinated. Obviously, they've not been able, most of them have not been able to go to France for a decade and so on. And it's always been a place that uh, they, they wanted to uh, uh, go to. Um, they are looking out for evidence of revolutionary depredations. And, and they can see that in, in burnt out chateaus and in uh, pillaged churches uh, and so on. Uh, but they are, a lot of them, Quite imp when they get to Paris, they're really quite impressed by the uh, the way authority has been imposed on the capital uh, and the way that uh, uh, military parades are there all the time. And there's that one occasion which I do mention in the book where uh, uh, one, uh, one British visitor watching a, a parade uh, uh, with Napoleon in inspecting the troops outside um, the Tuileries Palace said, by God, this man should rule the world. Uh, they're so impressed by, by, by that. Why did the peace of 1802 break down so quickly, and who would you say was primarily responsible? <laughs> well, the issue on which it breaks down is Malta. Uh, basically, Malta, uh, which uh, uh, had been a sort of semi-independent uh, state ruled, ruled by the, uh, the, the Knights of Malta, um, is taken by Napoleon when he's on his way to Egypt. Um, and uh, uh, <clears throat> so the, the, the French hold it, uh, but, but then the British capture it while he's, he's, he's marooned there in Egypt, and the British sit there. Um, and... Uh, when they're negotiate, trying to negotiate a deal, Napoleon wants the British to get out of Malta because he realizes that Malta is a key to uh, naval control of the whole Mediterranean, really. Uh, and uh, <laughs> although the British have agreed to evacuate Malta in the Peace of uh, Amiens, they see that, in fact, uh, uh, Napoleon is not just using the peace to, to, uh, uh, to, to try and... Uh, <clears throat> have amicable relations with everybody, he actually is using it to try and extend French influence in the, in, in the Netherlands, in Switzerland, in Italy, and so on. And they say, well, we better hang on to Malta, because uh, otherwise uh, uh, <coughs> the, the French will probably try and take Malta as well, and, and that will uh, rebuild the whole situation of, uh, of, of, of them trying to take Egypt, which uh, is also something Napoleon made little uh, secret of uh, hoping to do.
If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Professor, what would it be? I think it would be the thing that's impressed me with Napoleon. I mean, Napoleon is in many ways a really <laughs> repellent character. I mean, so, uh, uh, all sorts of character traits are really quite nasty. But you have to be impressed by his sheer ability to get things done, his sheer ability of keeping so many balls in the air at the time, um, and, and dealing simultaneously with these three great problems, or, or well, more than, more than three in one sense, because uh, I, I emphasize that that, um, that uh, uh, internal disorder is something as well, which is a, a product of all those things, and also the colonial issue as well, uh, which is his first great defeat, in fact, because the first thing that really goes wrong for him and that points the way to further defeats later on uh, but it's uh, the sheer ability of the man I think has always impressed me on that observation I would like to thank you very much Professor Doyle for being so kind to speak with us today you've been listening my to pleasure uh, thank you professor you've been listening to new books in history a podcast channel the new books network thank you Professor Doyle very much